0: The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. There it is. There is something magical about weddings. I want to consider weddings this morning. We have the privilege of celebrating a wedding here in this place in just a couple of weeks. That's going to be a a tremendous occasion. What a wonderful experience that's going to be. We've all had experiences with weddings in one form or another whether it was your celebration or that of a loved one, it's not difficult to remember the the sights and the smells of the ceremony, who you were sitting next to, that collective elation that comes upon a crowd of however size whenever they are witnessing two coming together, uh, two forming a new family under the bonds of holy matrimony that God has established. It's a beautiful thing. For you married men in the room, you will never forget that moment when those doors flung open and there she was. You'll never forget it. That moment eclipses all others. That's what everything has been pointing to. That's... That's what all of the phone calls, all of the meetings, that's what all of the cake decorating, that's what all of, the, uh, all of the things, the planning, the catering, everything goes into that one moment. It's what all the resources are pushed into the table towards. It's the moment you and all who are present see the bride in all of her splendor. She's there looking better than she ever has. She is completely immaculate. Immaculate. And everyone appropriately rises to their feet to to bask in her glory, as it were. It's her moment. It's the one that she has dreamt about her entire life as she is brought to the altar to be presented to her bridegroom. And some of you ladies in the room, you can think, you can remember very distinctly how that felt. Perhaps you were struggling to breathe. Perhaps you were trying not to trip over the train of your dress but it's imprinted on your memory in the best way. And that's a good thing. That's the sort of thing that God uses as thumbnails and as previews for the life of the world to come. These are pictures that he gives to us. It's important, and it's even necessary that we, that we think upon such things and that we savor them as the gifts that they are. These are good, true, and beautiful images. Those things that are, are right, as we prayed this morning, that God uses to communicate his plans for us in the new creation. This picture is the one that we have in our uh, our text this morning from Revelation 21. We are in the last couple of weeks of our series called The Victorious Christ. We've kind of done this broad sampling of the book of Revelation during the Easter season. We've tackled these large chunks of Revelation, uh, this Revelation to St. John. We see how it all connects to Jesus' resurrection, to his victory over death. Because this, this book, Revelation, this widely misunderstood book, is often used by Christians to evoke fear and to evoke panic, especially among Christians. That is usually what this book is used for. That's where the money is. That's how you can sell a book. I've got the new code for interpreting a revelation. You can buy it at Barnes and Noble, next to the self-help spirituality section where Oprah is number 1. But the message of the book is actually just the opposite. It's not meant to evoke fear and panic for Christians. Jesus comes to John the beloved, He comes to this heavily persecuted church to tell them and to tell us, the whole Christian church, that he has won such a decisive victory over sin, death, and the devil that we can have confidence and assurance to withstand anything that this life throws at us knowing that the end is already secure. It's a wrap. It's taken care of. So last week, we looked at this first part of Revelation. We looked at verses 1 through 7, 1 through 8. And now we come to the rest of the chapter, beginning with verse 9. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. It's interesting. This angel that has this bowl full of plagues, which is not a a very pretty picture, comes to John the beloved and says, let me show you something awesome. Picture that in your mind, all right? So this is what Revelation's all about. Revelation is going from how, things, how awful things are on earth to showing us heavenly realities and what's actually true. That's what's happening. Yeah, there's wrath being poured out on this earth. We experience it every day as we live in a world that is at odds with God, but here's the good news. Let me show you something awesome. Here's the wife of the lamb. So last week's text, it it just teased this idea of the bride of Christ. And that is the church, the church coming down from heaven. And now here we get to zoom in. We get to zoom in. John gets this good look at that bride and he gets the privilege of describing her to us. He's He's looking through the photo album of the wedding. Think of John sitting there in the church pew while the wedding ceremony is going on around him. The wedding party and their families have already processed into the sanctuary. There's this reverent silence that fills the room. The first notes of the bridal procession begin. The minister bids all to rise. And now here is John describing to you and I can hardly be put into words as he sees those doors fling open as he beholds the bride adorned for her husband. He describes her as a city, a city called the New Jerusalem, and from her emanates the glory of God. He compares her to rare jewels such as jasper, and he compares her to the brilliance of crystal. John describes her walls with 12 gates, each bearing the name of the 12 tribes of Israel, along with the 12 foundations labeled with the names of the 12 apostles. This little representation kind of shows you the, uh, the, cube, the cube shape there. It's not meant to be a full representation of this text, but, um, but in verses 15 through 20, which we didn't read earlier, uh, he describes the measurements of this city. It's this perfect cube with the dimensions of 12,000 stadia. And notice the numbers here. 12 gates, 12 foundations, 12,000 stadia. He then gives a measurement for the wall. 144 cubits, another multiple of 12, right? Math class, 12. 12 times 12. 144. And the foundations were adorned with every kind of jewel, But how many does John see fit to point out to us? Twelve, of course. Each jewel reflecting those that adorned the the breastplate of the high priest. In the Old Testament, that high priest had a big breastplate called an ephod that he would wear whenever he would take into the temple. And in verse 21, there are twelve gates made of twelve pearls. In other parts of Revelation that we didn't really touch on in this series, <clears throat> there is mention of a harlot called the, the prostitute of Babylon is the is the uh, uh, most PG way I can put it. The, the prostitute of Babylon. That is the anti-church, the, the foil of God's people. You know, if you watch a movie, you've got the protagonist and you've always got the antagonist. You've got the foil to the protagonist. That's what this prostitute of Babylon is. She is everything in this life that is opposed to God's holy church. In chapter 17, John was given a vision of that harlot. And it was one that was very ugly and detestable. She was drunk with the blood of the martyrs and the saints. And in her hand, she held this cup of abominations and impurities of sexual immorality. This is not a good picture we have of this harlot of Babylon. She was the complete opposite of what John is seeing here. So we have to keep this in mind. He already saw the prostitute of Babylon, and now who does he see? He sees the bride. She is the complete opposite. He saw something indescribable that the best that he could do was use numbers to symbolize what was true of her. When we heard and read uh, chapter 7, we saw that the number 144,000 was important as it encompassed the totality of the Christian church on earth. 12, we've learned, is this number that encompasses uh, and represents all of God's people from the Old Testament and his new covenant people in the New Testament as indicated by the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. The church itself is established upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, as Scripture says in Ephesians. So that's a lot of information, but what does all this indicate to us? What does this mean? Here you have the entirety of God's people, the holy Christian church, all together in its fullness. The difference between what John sees in chapter 7 and what he sees here is that here, here you have the church as the dwelling place for all of God's people and for God himself. That's what's being emphasized here. The totality of God's people in all of human history finally gathered together, this city coming down from heaven and God himself dwelling there in the midst of them. This new Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem descends from heaven to show us That this is all made possible only by the salvific plan of God through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is not a good idea or a fanciful plan that you and I undertook to accomplish this. This is God's salvific plan. This is from heaven itself. The bride does not adorn herself. The bride doesn't get herself ready, but she is made ready by the bridegroom the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself is her radiant glory and he is delighted to share his glory with her and give her all things that belong to him just as a bridegroom does for a bride whenever he says, I do. When he says, I do, he means you have everything that I have. As for the fact that the city is in the shape of a cube, keep that in mind for just a second. Keep it in mind as we consider what it means that this new Jerusalem will be God's dwelling place. Verses 22 uh, through 23 say this, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. This is, this is what is most key about this city that John, the beloved sees so in Jewish culture, the lack of a temple being there in, in the new heaven and earth would have been most striking. That would have been the thing that sticks out to the most. Why is that? Well, because in, in, in the Jewish mind, the temple is the location of God's manifest presence among us. That's where all of his promises are dished out, as it were. That's where you brought the sacrifices. That's where you heard God speak to you. All of these things. Occurred in the temple. It was the center of their political and religious life. And so now there is no temple. It's no longer needed. Because God himself takes up that responsibility. He takes up the vocation of being the temple. Now remember the cube? Cube shape? The shape of the most holy place... The most holy place in the temple, that was kind of the inner sanctuary. You had a sanctuary, and then you had an even inner sanctuary beyond that. The most holy place was located right at the middle, where the high priest went behind the curtain and brought the uh, sacrifice and he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. That was where God's presence was manifested in its fullness. You could die if you did something wrong. It was the perfect shape of a cube. Now, put this all together, and here's what it means. This entire city will be encompassed by the presence of God, and all believers, all Christians, will be a kingdom of priests among whom God dwells. What is ours now by faith will be ours by sight. And in what sense will it be ours by sight? Well, the text says we won't even need the sun or the moon because the glory of God will be our light and the lamp will be the lamb. We talked about this in a Bible study earlier. I'm not so sure that this means, that, this means to say that we literally will not have a sun or a moon seeing that they were created before the fall into sin. But if we are to take this symbolically, this is John's description of what it will be like to be in God's holy presence. This is what it will be like. We will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at all times, and our lives will completely revolve around Him and His gracious care of us into eternity. What He has accomplished on Calvary in His dying and in the empty tomb and His rising, that will all culminate in a new creation. This is the end. This is why he went to the cross. This is why he walked forth from the tomb. For this new heaven and this new earth, this new reality. This is what he has accomplished. And this thing that we call the church now, you and I, will be the new Jerusalem then. The city of God. And in this immaculate city, nothing Evil gets in. Verse 27 says, Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. We won't have to lock our doors. We won't have to carry firearms. You won't be worried about your Second Amendment rights on that day. We won't have to fear for our safety. There are no security measures in this city, in the new heavens and the new earth we won't even have to worry about our own sins that trouble us today. You know those sins that are burdening your conscience right now? Those things that you just can't shake? Things that weigh you down? Those things that cause you to cry out to God and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? They'll be gone. All evil, all perversions, all all twisted false teachings that lead God's people astray, all sins, and those who have refused to repent of them and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of them will have their share in the lake of fire. But that will not be so for you. At the return of Christ, you will be granted the resurrection of the body that resurrection that we confess every Sunday that we will confess here in just a moment. You will be given eternal life in the world, in the world to come in that new city, the bride adorned by her husband with the glory of his holiness. Is it because, that, is it because you're perfect at abstaining from evil? No. I hope, I hope not. That can't be it. None of us would get into that city if that were the criteria. Is it because you made a good decision for Christ? Is it because you decided that you wanted to get in and so Jesus has to let you in on principle? It's tempting to believe that. That's a popular teaching in American Christianity. You see, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 27 says that those are the only ones who will inhabit this city. Did you yourselves write your names in there? If you did, you've got to show me where that pen is because I need that pen. Of course you didn't. You can't decide to put your name there. He must write it because he alone is worthy to open the scroll. Go back to chapter 1. He must write your name in this book of life, I'll tell you why you're going to be there. It's because you, you as the church have been made ready. Listen to me. You have been made ready. You are being made ready in this present life, in the day-to-day, as you live presently in this promise, and you will be made ready. Ephesians chapter 5 says that Jesus has cleansed his bride by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present her to himself without any wrinkle, without any spot or blemish. Because you have been given this washing in holy baptism, which is the water with the word. Your sins, brothers and sisters, will not enter the city. Your sins will not enter the city, but you will. Jesus is your bridegroom who has washed you, cleansing you from all of your impurities. Jesus' death and resurrection, his complete victory has been applied to you in baptism. It's continually held out to you in the absolution and in these words that I preach to you as the promises are continually given to you as a gift of the gospel. I know that you'll be there because here in just a moment, you are, will receive the very body and blood of your Lord. And as you do, you will cling to His promise to never leave you nor forsake you. You will cling to His promise that this body and blood forgives your sins, that it preserves you in this true faith, and that it prepares you for the life of the world to come. You trust in His word of promise So we'll see one another there. And more importantly, we'll see Jesus there. Jesus will be there. He's the bridegroom that longs to see those doors fling open. And he can't wait to see his bride standing there, looking better than she ever has. She's going to walk down the aisle. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, We'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.